and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. So excited to have you with us for another episode today. And before we get to today's guest, I just want to tell you about how you might be able to help us out. So first of all, thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate everyone that sends texts, emails, shares these conversations on social media. Please continue to do so. Our base is growing. Our community is growing. And I'm just very grateful that you guys help give me a platform to help share these intentional performers with the world. The other way that you can continue to help us out is to go over to our Patreon homepage, patreon.com backslash intentional performers. And over there, you'll see how you can help support the show. It could be $2, $5, $10 a month. And it really does go a long way to help us continue to progress and make this show as good and with the best quality that we can possibly make it with. Now to today's guest, Darren McMains is somebody who I am very grateful that I got to meet recently. He was on a road trip with the Seattle Mariners, and we met in Baltimore, which is about 45 minutes away from where I am right outside Washington, D.C., and we talked about the mental side of baseball. And Darren works as the peak performance coordinator for the Seattle Mariners, and he coordinates the mental skills program for the whole organization there. So he works with the 40-man roster, and then they have two other people in their department that work with the rest of their minor league system. So if you don't know about mental skills in baseball, almost all of the organizations use somebody like Darren. And Darren is at the forefront of that practice, and he really does a great job with the Mariners. He also has a story in baseball. He played minor league baseball in the San Francisco Giants organization, so he's going to share his journey into the baseball world and what that was like for him. He's going to share what it was like to grow up uh, with baseball at the forefront of his attention, and he also played other sports in high school, and he's going to also talk about the mental game and some of the challenges he had with the mental game and what led him to studying this and becoming obsessed with this to the point where now that's what he does full-time with the Mariners. So for somebody that's interested in the mental skills of elite athletes, this conversation will be right up your alley. So I'm so excited to present to you, Darren McMains. Darren, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. We chatted, I guess it was a little over a month ago. I don't know exactly when. It's summertime, so I uh, haven't kept 
quite a good track of my calendar. But uh, when we chatted, I, I really enjoyed uh, just talking about the mental game and hearing your perspective and hearing your journey. And so it was with that where I said, hey, why don't we uh, connect again and share some of what we talked about uh, with the audience and with the community that I've got with the podcast. So I'm really grateful that you're taking the time in the middle of baseball season. And I know you guys are, are making a playoff push. So really grateful to have you on to share your story and share uh, what you know about mindset. And I figured where we could start is just get a sense of who you are and how you came to be. So if you can give us some insight into what life was like for you as a kid and uh, let's start there. Sure. Um, yeah. So I grew up in uh, North Central Arkansas, a town called Mountain Home, Arkansas, about 8,500 people. So a smaller town. Um, you know, uh, when I was uh, in, in the first grade in Arkansas, uh, I was getting in a lot of trouble in class. Um, uh, and, and so uh, principals, teachers, my parents decided that uh, potentially wasn't challenging enough. So I actually did first and second grade uh, in the same year. Um, so kind of skipped a grade, but did them both at the same time as they thought that might help. And so the only reason I share that is because I think it kind of speaks to my journey later as far as like, um, not being able to sit still and always trying to get on to the next thing, which is a, uh, something for me that uh, I got to slow down sometimes, you know, but, um, Hey Darren, yeah, so that was kinda, Darren, yeah. not to cut you off, but I'm just curious. So I feel like a lot of times, uh, and, and we're around, probably the same generation from an age standpoint. I feel like a lot of times those kids that can't sit still are, are seen as, as having ADHD or being dumb or having a problem, but it sounds like for you, they actually thought the opposite. So I'm just curious as to why uh, they took that approach. Yeah. You know, what? I, I don't know. I was so young. Uh, I've talked to my parents a, a little bit about it, but there was some conversation around um, ADHD. Definitely. There was conversation around that. Um, I had a stuttering problem, a pretty severe stuttering problem at the time, which um, some of the teachers thought that, you know, uh, well, some of sure thought I was dumb, but the other ones thought like maybe his thoughts are just going too fast and he doesn't have the words to catch up, which uh, turned out though that group was correct, you know. Um, so again, I don't know the total conversation. I do um, do remember there were talks about you know putting me on meds or whatever. But um, once they put me into the second grade, I remember I literally remember my first day so vividly because I walked into the classroom. Um, obviously, new classroom, second grade now, and on the on the chalkboard was cursive writing and. And the assignment was to uh, write down what we could read on the board. And I'd never seen cursive in my life. Like, you know, first grade, I'm not sure what we were learning, but I'd never seen cursive. And I just remember staring at the board. And uh, the only thing I could make out was the date. And the only reason I could make out the date, because I saw a one, and I remember it was March 1st. And so I'm like, you know what, that looks like a C. That's probably an A. I think that's an M. You know, so I'm like, oh, that must be the date, you know. So um, I vividly remember doing that in my first assignment, trying to write out cursive when I went to the second grade. So um, yeah, again, uh, I'm very thankful, you know, that they, um, came up with that. And I do remember going, um, sitting with a psychologist. Um, obviously I didn't know it was a psychologist at the time. I just thought it was a person that had, uh, pictures of, you know, the ink blot. I remember doing the ink blot test seriously. And, and I remember, uh, doing it and, and I thought it was kind of like a joke. Like I remember, and so I started to like have fun with it. Like I, I would just make up these ridiculous things, you know, I'm like, uh, oh, it looks like a squirrel climbing a tree and he's trying to get this acorn. And the psychologist was like, really? You see that? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it's odd, you know? Um, but I don't know. Um, I just thought it was kind of silly, uh, you know, uh, as a second grader, first slash second grader, I thought it was silly. And so I thought I'm just going to have fun with this. And 
Um, yeah, for whatever reason, they're like, oh, he should go to second grade. So, were you, uh, were you someone who, who talked back? Were you somebody who, um, you know, you said you got in some trouble. Were, were, how were you with authority? Yeah. Um, probably the same to this day where it's like, I like to toe the line. You know, I definitely, um, uh, I, I like to th- think I have a good heart, right? I mean, I know I measure myself by my intentions and everyone else measures me by my actions. I get that, but it was never to like, um, you know, be rude or, um, anything, but I, I just wanted to challenge, um, kind of things that were being said and, and why we do what we do. Like I was really curious kid. I wanted to know why, um, and I understand now being older, like teachers don't always have time to tell every kid why we're doing what we're doing. But, um, yeah, I don't know. You always had a lot of questions, but like, it was never like fighting trouble, but it was just, um, you know, cutting up in class, trying to make a quip, a joke, make people laugh. Um, you know, and, and I still get in trouble in those things uh, nowadays too, when probably, um, you know, trying to make a joke when things probably, it's not the best time to make a joke, you know, but, uh, yeah, that was kind of me in elementary school. And give me, give me some insight into family dynamic. Yeah. So older brother, um, I was two years older than me. Uh, we, it, it was cool when I got to move up a grade cause then, um, you know, I was a sophomore when he's a senior in high school. So, and we ended up actually playing, uh, a year of junior college baseball together and a year of uh, baseball together at Arkansas Little Rock. Um, so that was pretty cool, uh, because I got moved up. We were able to play together a couple years, which was a lot of fun. Um, you know, dad, my dad worked at uh, Frito-Lay for 26 years. Um, very committed, disciplined, um, get up, go to work every day. Um, you know, and retired, uh, you know, from them obviously and worked for them for a long time. And my mom, um, uh, was a partial owner of a business of, um, like low income housing. And so, um, you know, uh, just kind of really saw, uh, the need to help people get in homes, you know, so they can focus on uh, other things. And so, uh, yeah, that was my upbringing, just my brother and I, and, uh, two parents that work full-time jobs. What were the values that mom and dad passed down to you? Sure. Um, first, but you know, faith is, is a big part of what we do, um, in our family, um, kindness, you know, um, treating others with respect. Um, you know, I grew up in a predominantly white community. Um, I played, you know, in playing sports. Uh, I remember going to Little Rock, um, you know, and playing with a, a hugely diverse team that I'd never seen before, which, um, was really awesome. You know, my parents were always pushing us to get out, uh, get more experience, uh, quote unquote, in the real world, right? Uh, outside of this little small town uh, in Arkansas. And um, sports was the vehicle for that. So, you know, faith, kindness, um, you know, obviously uh, uh, trying to understand people's stories, I think was always pretty big. Like, you know, talk with people, engage with people, you know, because um, one thing my parents always talked about is, you know, it's it's hard to not like some, it's hard to not like um, someone when you know their story, you know? And so it was just, um, you know, I always saw my, I always remember my parents, um, just talking with people all the time, you know, and there's times as a kid, you're like, let's just go, you know, whether you're at the grocery store or wherever you're like, good Lord, can we go home? You know? And, uh, but it's obviously rubbed off on me and, um, the, the value of getting to understand people and their story, where they come from and just, uh, helps you develop empathy and, um, yeah, just makes you like them. When did, uh, baseball come into your life? Yeah. So, um, gosh, I played baseball as long as I can remember, you know, um, but, but growing up, I, I played every sport. It wasn't just baseball. You know, I played soccer, basketball, football, baseball. Um, and, and actually I really wanted to play basketball, you know, as a collegiate athlete. That was kind of what I really loved basketball, loved the team aspect. 
I loved getting up and down the floor. I loved all those things. Um, just wasn't very, um, good. I guess you're good enough to play at the college level, you know? So, uh, my senior year of high school in baseball, I realized that, um, for me to play professionally, I was going to need to be a switch hitter. And so literally my senior year, I just said, I'm going to switch hit and just started doing it. Um, now granted I'd always played wiffle ball with my brother growing up. So we, I had, I'd had to switch hit growing up, uh, in our wiffle, you know, playing in the backyard. But, um, and I give my coach a lot of credit my senior year of high school, you know, I was returning. I was one of the better players on the team, you know, hitting the middle lineup. And I just said, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to bat left-handed this year also. And I remember thinking, he looked at me like, are you, are you serious? And I said, yeah, I'm serious. I'm going to switch hit this year. And he said, well, you better practice really hard. I said, okay, I will. And, uh, worked really hard and, um, it was the best year I'd had. Our team actually won the state championship, um, in the high school, uh, high school state tournament that year. And then we went on and won the American Legion state championship and, um, yeah, had a good run. And, and I had really not been, been on anybody's radar at that point in, in returns, uh, in regards to being recruited. And so, uh, I ended up going the Juco route, um, because it was just like at the state tournament. Somebody's like, Oh, this kid's a good player. Where are you going? I said, nowhere. And then nobody's talked to me. And he's like, come here. And I said, that's cool. I'll go there. So I went to West Ark Community College in Fort Smith, um, which is not even a junior college anymore. It's now uh, the University of Arkansas at Fort Smith, which is a division two school. Uh, and then after two years there, I went to Arkansas Little Rock. So I'm just curious, how did you do batting left-handed senior year? Um, shockingly well, like um, I, I don't remember what my batting average was. It was just a tick under 500, you know, um, um, with some homers, uh, there were a couple good pitchers I, I would face, uh, like, um, who ended up being a former teammate of mine, Ronnie Goodwin, that was North Little Rock. I batted right-handed against him because, uh, you know, he had some pretty good, uh, off-speed stuff. And I thought, boy, I better, um, I don't know if I'm ready to hit left-handed off Ronnie yet. But other than that, I was fully committed. Like, I think Ronnie's the only guy I hit right-handed off of. Um, but other than that, yeah, I, I just went full commitment. I mean, I was a good fastball hitter, you know, I think, um, and then, and in high school, a lot of the kids I was facing, you know, I wasn't in California, Texas, Florida, where maybe guys had plus secondary stuff. Um, most of the best pitchers in Arkansas then were just guys that threw really hard. And so, you know, I could hit a fastball. So hitting left-handed um, wasn't that big a challenge. Um, I mean, I worked really hard, but it, it wasn't as, as maybe difficult as I thought it was going to be. What allowed you to take that step? So uh, you're not getting recruited you have a dream of playing in the big leagues it sounds like um but what allowed you to take that risk it's that you could have just kept batting right-handed and, and having success there but what do you think unlocked yeah. that risk for you you know what um and, and i think it's kind of like why i shared you know getting moved up maybe early on um grade with you know from first to second grade i think uh and maybe it's for my parents too but it was always one of those things that it's like if you want to do something just do it you know, you'll figure it out. Like, you know, I think a lot of times we spend a lot of time trying to figure things out before we go and do something, you know? Um, and for me, uh, up until that point I had had success just kind of jumping in with both feet and figuring out as I went. And so it, I think it just led to that moment of like, you know what I've done before I'll do it again. I know if I put in the work, it'll work out. Um, uh, fortunately I had support of, of, you know, my coaching staff there that, that believed that I could do it and would work with me. Um, I put in the work, you know, as a huge goal setter, you know, so I'd make sure I got a certain amount of swings in every day and I'd write it down on my little white sheet of paper and put it on my, you know, on the wall, like, like people say to do, but most people don't like I actually did that, you know? And, um, yeah. And, and I think that was just kind of it, just go all in and figure it out as I go, you know? 
as you think about mom and dad, and I don't know them, so I'm just going to paint a picture of, of listening to you talk about them. You know, mom sure. sounds maybe more entrepreneurial and dad maybe stayed the same route, you know, a corporate guy and provided security for the family. Uh, are you more like mom or more like dad? And if I have that sort of view of their mindsets wrong, please correct me. Oh, no, that's I've never heard that. That's pretty good. Um yeah, you know what? Who am I more like? Gosh, that's a good question. You know, I definitely probably am more like my dad, like very task oriented, like give me something, I'll go do it, you know, um, let me take care of it. Um, but I definitely see my mom in a, in a lot of what I do as well, the entrepreneurial spirit, um, creative, you know, like she, um, for a while I thought she worked at our church, you know, cause she led worship for over 30 years. And then it wasn't until probably 10 years ago that I realized that she volunteered the entire time. And so I went like, wow, you know, um, which I think, you know, says a lot about her and, and her commitment to serve and those types of things. But, um, yeah, you know, so I think I get the kind of like the creative, like just go for it spirit from her, but the kind of task oriented, like stick with it discipline from, uh, my dad for sure. And what's your older brother like from a personality standpoint? Sure. We're a lot of like, you know, I would say he's definitely more on, he probably gets more of my mom's spirit than my dad, you know? Um, like my brother's like, go get her. Like, let's just go for it. You know, doesn't always maybe have the best plan in place, but his heart and his effort is always in the right place. And so sometimes it's just trying to give him, um, structure. Cause when, you know, he's the type of guy that when you, when you give him something and give him the guidelines to work within, he's unbelievable, you know, but if you say, Hey, go make this happen, you know, he'll, he'll come out with something completely different. It'll be good, but it's like, that's not what I had in mind, you know? So, uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, he pitched professionally for a couple of years in independent ball. Um, and so being a pitcher and, and being a relief pitcher at that, being in the bullpen, I think that just kind of fed into, um, you know, him just being, uh, a more of a go, go getter, a little bit crazy. And what was it like playing baseball with him in at junior college? Oh, it was awesome, man. Um, yeah, such a blessing. Like I look back and it was just like some of the best uh, times that we had. Uh, and we would get mad at each other for sure. You know, like um, he pitched better when he was angry. So I did learn that about him. Um, and I didn't share that secret with him until we were done playing. You know, I think a lot of times he would take it personal when I would go up there and tell him how bad he was doing, how the guy that was going to hit was going to crush him if he didn't pick it up, you know, and, and he, you know, so he's going to fight me after the game. And I do remember one time in American Legion, my dad, uh, met us in the dugout cause we, he saw us yelling at each other on the mound and he met us in the dugout and was going to pull us both out of the game if we didn't. Um, act better because we were um, embarrassing uh, the family name out there looking like a couple babies yelling at each other. But um, I did it as strategy, you know, and my brother always pitched better for it. So um, it wasn't as it's funny, but when now we're done playing, we laugh about that. He's like, I'd get so mad at you. And I'm like, yeah, but you'd pitch so good. It was awesome. So um, it was a lot of fun. I'd love to stay there and just unpack that a little more. So I was working with a college soccer team yesterday, uh, two days ago. And uh, there was a, it was a female team and, and one of the girls said, you know, I play better when I'm angry. And mm -hmm. so w what are your thoughts on that? If a pitcher or an athlete in general just tells you, Hey, I play better when I'm angry. How do you, how do you handle that as a, a mental skills coach? Yeah. You know, um, and I've worked with college football players that kind of give that, that same uh, statement, you know, and, and I think, um, if that's what they want to call it, I leave it at that, you know, um, but, you know, I think anger does serve a purpose as it does channel um, focus for sure. You know, I, th I think we've seen that. And so I think what it does, it just increases their ability to focus on the task at hand. Um, 
based on their experiences or whatever, because they, um, compete best with a chip on their shoulder or maybe they have something to prove, you know? And so I do worry about those athletes sometimes at the highest level because when they do have a lot of success and they have a lot of praise, um, and they get paid handsomely for it. Right. I think there is a fear of like, what is there to be angry about? And then where does that edge go? You know, and I have worked with, uh, a pitcher. Well, I'll just give you a, a story. Um, <laughs> uh, a pitcher who was in low a, who was, uh, without giving away too much information, but a really high pig, you know, uh, got a lot of money, um, married his high school sweetheart, you know, went to a really good university, um, and was just not pitching really well, kind of really underperforming. And so one night I'm sitting with him in the stands as he's charting pitches. And, you know, my job was kind of get to the bottom of it, feel, you know, wh- why do we think he's underperforming? And, um, so, you know, I'm asking him why, why this and that, and, you know, and I even shared with him and say, Hey, you know, a lot of coaches think that you pitch better when you're angry. Would you agree with that? And he said, uh, you know, I, yeah, I think I would. I, I think I do pitch better when I'm angry. And I said, well, you know, um, how do we make you angry? He goes, I'll be honest. I don't have anything to get angry about. He's like, signed for a couple million dollars, married my, you know, high school sweetheart. Uh, we have a dog, you know, have a nice home, you know, it's like my families are doing good. Like I gotta, I'm going to go back and get my degree from this awesome university. You know, he's like, honestly, DMAC, I don't have a lot to be angry about, you know? And, um, I was like, oh, this is going to be a challenge, you know? So through conversation, you know, I realized, you know, what's most important to him, you know, like at the end of the day, what's most important to him. And, and his big thing that we got to was, um, he really wants his wife to stay at home and raise their kids. Hmm. And so it's like, okay, perfect. Like now I know what's most important to him. Now let's help him create a picture of where that ain't going to happen. Right. And so, you know, I was talking to, and then it was, Hey, you understand, like every time you're pitching, the guys you're facing, you understand, like they want someone else to raise your kids. Like they want your wife to go out and get a full-time job. Right. And so, uh, you know, so you have to put your kids in childcare or whatever, you know, and we kind of painted this ridiculous picture, but, um, that's what mattered to him. And so a part of his routine on the days he would pitch, what he would visualize like this, um, a, a person that, you know, I have, hit, you know, I was like, I don't want to know too much, but I was like, you, you come up with the, the worst person that you think you want to raise your kids and, you know, and, and visual picture of that, you come up with that, you picture what, what that person would be doing to those kids, whatever, you know? And, um, and so he would, on the days he would pitch, he would, that would be a part of his process where he would like go so far in the future where he saw, you know, someone else raising his kids and, you know, and him, him and his wife both having nine to five jobs and coming home and not really knowing his kids and all those things. And, um, yeah. And he, you know, turned his kind of season around and now the guy's still pitching the big leagues today. So, um, kind of interesting. Uh, but I do think, uh, anger has its place if it's channeled in the right way for sure. Yeah. There's two elements that I'd love to just tug on there. One is I love that question of what matters most to you. That's such a cool question. Um, you know, I think so often we, we do what matters most to others and we don't always think about what matters most to us. And Mm. if we can get clarity around what matters most to us, that's where motivation lies. So that's a really cool question. So I'm going to steal that. So thank you for that. And you're welcome. And then the second is, uh, as far as anger goes, you know, one of the reasons why I challenge athletes that say that they play better when they're angry is because our decision-making tends to go down and, Mm. um, our focus does narrow, but depending on what sport you're playing and what position you are, a narrow focus can also be 
really, really harmful. So for soccer, right. where uh, this was, I think she was a midfielder, you know, a midfielder mm. really has to have the ability to go forwards, backwards, side to side. A pitcher, it's about hitting a target. So a narrow focus uh, can be really, really helpful for them. So it's so interesting when I think about anger, uh, I really love to probe them to find out, all right, well, how does that impact your decision making? And how is energy uh, or excitement similar or different than anger? And mm. what do we get from energy and excitement that maybe we don't get from anger? Um, and I also think anger tends to be reactive. So we have to create it. Uh, like you had him create that for himself. And then the reaction is an emotion of anger. Whereas excitement and energy, I think we can generate um, in a in a more organic way. So I, I hear that all the time. There was a pro basketball player one time and he was very stoic and very even keel. And he was an all-star and his coaches. And if you watched him, they would say he plays best when he's angry because he'd get a spark of energy. And then he'd start defending. He'd start taking the ball aggressively to the rim and start doing these things without thinking. And it would just be pure task or pure instinct. Um, but the challenge was he would do that maybe once a game. So you would see this spike and then a drop and a spike mm. and then a drop. So anger is something that I've always just been really interested in because it's an emotion that every human feels. Um, sure. but the question is, do we want to feel it more often as performers? And so, um, I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. And, and I really like what you said about, um, energy level, right. And excitement. Cause I think that's ultimately what we're trying to do is to get to the optimal energy level, you know, of what it takes to compete. And so, um, and I love the way you frame that and you're right as far as like anger, narrowing focus and understanding the, the positional demand and the sport demand of the athlete and how anger can either help or, or hurt them based on their position and what they're called on to do. So, uh, I think as practitioners of people that do what we do, I think those are always important things to consider, right? What is the sport demand and what is their specific role demand and how, um, anger, if it does fit into that at all, but more importantly, how can we reframe that to energy? Cause that's what we're trying to get to, right? Is focused energy on the task at hand. And so, um, yeah, those are great points. What position did you play? I was a second baseman most of the time. And so you're playing junior college ball, then you go on mm -hmm. and, and how do you get recruited? I forget it was Arkansas. What, what Little Rock. Yeah. Arkansas, Arkansas Little Rock. So how, how does that recruitment go down? And then what's it like playing yeah. at that level? Yeah, so um, so I had I had two two uh, really good years at junior college, and um, Arkansas Little Rock, I guess, have been watching me since I was in high school. Which, um, I, well, at least that's what they shared with me during the recruiting process. But one thing that they uh, I was being recruited also by Southwest Missouri State, which is, I think is Missouri State that is now Missouri State, but it was at the time Southwest Missouri State. Um, I had a, a, a trip lined up to uh, Ole Miss that I never took. Um, I did go to University of Arkansas. I was being recruited by them. And I, um, what, I did talk to uh, Coach Van Horn, who's now at University of Arkansas, who was at University of Nebraska at the time. So um, those were some of the schools and Arkansas Little Rock. But the thing that Arkansas Little Rock said that, that really um, – kind of inspired me to go there, um, for good or for bad. I don't know. But I just remember them saying like, why would you want to go to Arkansas when they've won so many titles? Why would you want to go to Ole Miss? And they've won so many titles. Like, you know, they kind of pitted this other thing against me and they said us here at Arkansas, Little Rock have never won the Sun Belt. Like it's always more important to be a part of uh, the first as opposed to just one of many. And that kind of stuck out. Right. And so, um, just doing something different that maybe has never been done before. You know, um, I don't know. Again, I don't know if it goes back to like, I saw myself as, 
being able to do things people couldn't do, whether it's good or bad, arrogant, I don't know, you know, because it's like, oh, I got moved up in a grade and I just started switch hitting because I wanted to, you know, so I just think I'm like, yeah, let's go there and let's win a Sun Belt, you know, <laughs> so um, that was really my decision to go there. It was like, I'm going to go bring the first Sun Belt uh, Conference Championship to this place. Um, didn't do it, you know, but um, uh, was excited about the opportunity to be a part of the first. Now, you know, the draft happens and I got drafted out of there um, by the Giants, but uh, I remember looking back and thinking like there were a lot of other things I probably should have considered, you know, like going to a school that uh, maybe had the major that I wanted, um, what has better competition to play against that might help you get drafted higher later on, you know, like all these little things that, again, you know, um, I'm kind of painting this picture. I, I find something I like. I just go all in and figure it out when I get there, um, which I think kind of happened when I picked uh, Arkansas Little Rock there. But um, I, I love my experience there. I love my teammates there. Uh, met my um, wife there, you know, we still, still married today. She's a soccer player there. So, um, excited that I went there, but the thinking that went into it, uh, it was just like, yeah, I'll go be a part of the first. Let's do it. You mentioned writing down goals in high school. Did that continue for you in college? And did you have dreams? Yeah. It sounds like you had dreams of playing pro ball, uh, all along the way. I did. Yeah. I mean, I always wanted to play professional something, you know, I think like, um, maybe most American kids, it's like, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, I'm going to be a pro whatever, you know? So I want to be a pro basketball player, pro baseball player. Again, that kind of shifted when I realized basketball probably wasn't the best route for me, um, based on my size and skill set, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, and so, yeah, I always had those dreams, you know? And, and then, um, always, yeah, I've always been a goal setter, you know, like, um, you know, whether it's a hundred swings a day, like I will stay in there until I get a hundred, you know? Um, whether it's take 50 ground balls a day, I will take 50 ground balls a day. You know, I, I will do that. Um, that's just, uh, there, for me, there's never been like a strategy on how to do it. I know now I give people strategies on how to do it, but for me, it was just always like you write down a number and then you don't stop until you get that number. And so I did that, um, all through college. I even did that in, in, in pro ball as well. So that's been one thing that, uh, for me, I've always done. And, and, and I think in, even in the way I, I do my practice now when I work with athletes, it's like I, I don't try to motivate them. I just try to help them discover a vision, right? Because vision motivates. Like I can't motivate you. I might be able to inspire you for a day and you might go do it. But at the end of the day, if you don't have a vision for yourself, then I know whatever that you're set up to do, you're not going to keep doing it. So motivation is just a byproduct, I think, of a clear vision, you know? How do you help athletes discover their vision? Yeah. You know, I, I think one starts with kind of what we've talked about earlier. It's like, you know, what matters most to you? You know, um, that's one thing. Uh, another thing is, is just kind of helping them discern, um, uh, you know, who they want to become, like what type of life do you want to live, you know, and then help them realize where they're at right now. It's like, this is what you want, you know, and this is where you are right now. Now, how do we close that gap? Right. And that's the thing is like, how will you manage the gap between uh, where you are and where you want to be? So how well do you manage that? And well, the best way to manage that that I know is you make a pretty good plan, you know, that involves goals and steps along the way. And um, when you wake up in the morning, you do it. And when you're done, you finish. I mean, you know, like I, I don't, uh, I wish there was a shortcut or a magic pill like like we all talk about, but it's it's for me it's it's really trying to figure out who you want to become. Be honest with yourself on, on where you are, you know. And sometimes you got to talk with with people, you know. Like it would have been helpful for me maybe for someone to um, step in, you know, when I was in a sophomore in high school when I was saying I want to play in the NBA, and they're like, hey, you know, you're five six and 125 pounds, like let's let's reconsider, you know, and, and maybe walk me through that a little bit. Now I might have told them to go 
um, jump in a lake, who knows, but it would have uh, helped me just become more self-aware, you know, for sure. And then maybe I could have started switch hitting earlier and then become a better hitter. I don't know, you know, but, um, for me, yeah, helping athletes find that vision. I think it's a combination of, you know, who do you want to become high level self-awareness? Who are you really? And where are you at? And then coming up with a plan on how to, how to get there. Well, I'm, I'm just cracking up because, uh, my peak as an athlete probably occurred in fifth grade. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I think there are a lot of parents right now who hope that their fifth grader does great. But for me, looking back, it's like, I was the same way. I was five foot six, five, five, a hundred, nothing. And, uh, basketball is my sport. And nobody pulled me aside and said, Brian, this, this probably ain't going to work out for you. And, uh, and, and I always say, just like you said, if they had told me that, I probably would have told them to go F themselves. And uh, yeah. they probably would have yeah. doubled my my fire to try to make it happen. Um, so I always laugh. I'm like, yeah, someone should have said, hey, why don't you pick up a lacrosse stick? Or, you know, you see that ball that you like to kick in right. soccer? You're, you're actually pretty decent at that. Why don't you stick with it? Nope. I want to dribble basketball and try to uh, dunk on Fisher Price hoops. But, um, <laughs> lo- you know, it, it didn't work out for me. Um, as you think about yourself and uh, the goals and having the vision for yourself, you now get to work with pro athletes. What percentage of your pro athletes have a vision for themselves? Uh, when you sit down and talk mm-hmm. with them, uh, how many of them actually do, ha- when you ask them, Hey, what matters most to you? How many of them are clear on that and have a vision for where they want to go? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, so right now I work with the, uh, you know, 40 man roster and, and, and over, you know, my time with the Giants, I would work with, you know, our entire organization, which would be about 180 guys. So we'll just take of the 180 players from Major League all the way down. I would probably say uh, somewhere between 10 to 15 would have a re- not percent, just 10 to 15 um, would have a real clear vision on um, who they who they can become and who they are and the steps to get there, you know. Um, and usually those 10 to 15, they succeeded, you know, um, some guys would succeed with no plan just cause they're uber talented, you know, which, um, is okay too. And then I've learned like those, those guys are hard to, um, connect with those athletes are hard to connect with once they've had a ton of success and reached the big leagues without quote unquote, a specific plan, you know, cause things have always worked out for them just cause they're so talented, uh, bigger, stronger, faster, throw harder, whatever it is. And so, they've had a lot of success without making a plan. So why start now? You know, and I've learned that those athletes, you really can't help them until you kind of get to, uh, a, like their mid thirties, you know, when their talent starts to go away and now they're like, okay, how can I be more intentional in developing these skills that I need to be successful? Um, and you know, somebody said a long time ago that I cling to today, that is completely, um, I've just learned to, it's for me, it's as true as, as anything is, you know, behavior change comes from two places either learn enough you want to, or you heard enough you have to, you know? And so, um, for us in our job, you know, it's always trying to teach and teach and and hope that they learn, but if they don't have an open mind because they're so physically gifted that they're just successful, 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 guess what? They're not going to learn no matter how much you teach because no matter what they do, it works out for them, but they will hit a point, whether it's, you know, injury or they just get old and their skills start to diminish that they'll hurt enough that they'll have to, you know? And so, um, I've learned that, uh, you gotta, um, be present with them, serve them, um, encourage them along the way, because when they do hurt enough, they have to, if you haven't been with them along the way, uh, supporting them, they won't seek you out to help them make the changes they need to make. 
How do you quiet your ego to still serve those people, even if they aren't interested in being served when you, when you're with them? Sure. You know, that's a um, great question. Again, for me, for me, it goes back to my faith. You know, it's like, um, I really, uh, you know, I try to share with guys and, and any athlete all the time. It's like, I, I really have no agenda other than to see you become as great as you want to become. Like, that's really it. And it's, and you're the one, you know, on the court, you're the one in the arena, you're the one on the field, you're the one in the batter's box. Like you're the one that does it. Right. Cause I think anytime, uh, someone in our, in our shoes or even the coaches, anytime a coach tries to take credit for, um, something their athlete does, what it does is it strips power away from the athlete. Right. And we want to empower our athletes. So I think, um, and I don't know if that, I don't know where I learned that, but you know, I'm sure somebody told me, I definitely didn't come up with it on my own, but I've always just held that with me as far as like our job is to empower the athletes. So they feel, um, in complete control when they're performing, you know, and, and the truth is, is I'm not the one on the field or in the boxer and they're, I'm not. And so I'm really not doing anything. And so I'm just uh, there to support them. So, um, I think for me to keep my, uh, ego in check, it, it's really understanding who's the one performing. And then to, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm called to love them whether they're good or bad. And that's kind of it. So, well, it's kind of like the social media, Instagram, Facebook world we live in where everyone's showing all the good stuff. If you work right. with athletes for long enough, you will know that you are in, you're not in the batter's box because you're going to lose a lot. And, uh, oh, yeah. you know, I've, I've worked with so many athletes where we've done great work together and they strike out a lot and, or they get cut from a team uh, or uh, they don't get that D1 offer they were hoping for. Um, and for me, it's the, the line to make sure that you, you feel little of the pain when they don't have success. Like, I think it's important to feel a little bit because you're in, you're in the foxhole with them, but to also understand that it's their foxhole. And yeah. I, like you said, I think any great coach, I'm always listening to hear coaches that say that. And, um, that's why when I've been part of championship teams at whatever level, I smile but I'm not the one jumping up and down and like going nuts. And, you know, I think there's a line there that I learned early. I think my first couple of years doing this, I was so into it and following everything and so attached. And the issue with that is if you attach your self-worth to someone else's performance, that's going to be a rough go for you because, and in sports in general, like if athletes attach their self-worth to their batting average, that's going to be a rough go for them. And so, you know, if people are in our field and listening to this, I think that's such an important thing that you're pointing out, which is it's not your success and you can do great work and they can still fail. And by the way, yeah. they can do great work and they can still fail. So, um, I'm, I'm just really happy you brought that up. Cause I think it's, it's one of the big lessons that I've, I've learned doing this and I've learned it honestly, the hard way. Um, and I realized at pretty early on, I was like, Whoa, this isn't going to be a, a healthy life for me. And you know, the other difference is an athlete, a baseball player, I don't know the average career, but, uh, lifespan, but maybe it's six years. I don't know. I know in football, it's only three, uh, for us, hopefully we're in it for a long time. And, uh, right. you know, I think coaches the same way, if you take, uh, a professional manager in baseball or a coach in football or basketball, you know, they're going to be at it for a long time. And you see these coaches and managers get so burnt out and so yeah. attached to the scoreboard. And it's a fine line though, cause you have to care. It's professional. It matters. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. 
Yeah, uh, you know, and, and you said something right there at the end that I think is, is really important for anyone that works in our field to remember. Then you said it matters, right? The results matter. And I think um, like career suicide, you know, in, in sports psychology is to go in there and say uh, only the process matters, right? Because although it does matter, right? Me, I separate it like this. I say there's a difference between what matters and what's helpful. The process is what's helpful. Focusing on the process is what is helpful, Results matter. I get it. Right. And so I think for us in our field, we have to realize and, and, and understand and, and share with athletes. Look, I get it. I know results matter. I know that if you're not performing, you don't play. I know that, you know, and, and recognize that. But there's and then share with them, you know, there's a difference between what what matters and what's helpful. And so um, our job is to help you focus on what's helpful as a, because the world and everybody else wants you to focus on what matters, you know. And so that's kind of how I, I've framed it. But, um, yeah, I think in our again, in our field, I can't stress this enough. Like we have to empathize with the athlete and recognize the fact that results absolutely matter. You know, one of the things that just popped into my head as you're telling that, and I love how you just make that distinction. It's very clear um, as far as results and process. So, so I love that. Um, a lot of people often ask me, do you work with the yips? Like, do you, are you the guy who comes in when Chuck Knobloch can't make the throw to first? Um, what percentage of your work is working with people who are slumping or uh, have the yips or you know, are, are really struggling in that capacity versus uh, helping someone go from good to great or, uh, you know, just try to try to get better every day? Yeah, you know, I would. Um, I mean, yeah, first, that's the natural. I think that's the natural inclination is like, oh, you must work with people that have the yips. You know, I think I get that. In fact, when I was first um, thought about going into this career and approach to do this career, I thought that's kind of what the job would be. Right. I mean, until I started really reading about it and understanding it better, I went like, Oh, that's not really what this job is at all. That's a, a piece of it, but that's not, um, the whole thing. So I would say probably, um, I, this is my sixth year doing this at the professional level. Um, it probably averages out to about one player a year. Honestly, you know, like one athlete a year kind of gets to that space where they're like, ah, I'm not sure if this is going where I want it to go, you know, and then self-doubt creeps in. So, um, you know, you, you average that out to the roughly 180 athletes a year you work with, you know, whatever percent that is, that's the percent of the, uh, the work. And, um, it, it's a tough thing for sure. I want to go back a little bit and just close the loop on, on your career as a baseball mm -hmm. player. So, you have success, enough success at Arkansas Little Rock to get drafted. Uh, what comes next for you after that? Yeah, so I uh, played in the minor leagues. For, so I drafted in 2001 uh, by the Giants and then played in the minor leagues until uh, spring training in 2008. I retired to spring training. I just had, um, I'd had five surgeries along the way, uh, six season-ending injuries in like the, the seven years that I'd played professional baseball. And so um, – Again, I think that really uh, helped me grow as a person. It definitely helped me uh, uh, gain a better perspective on what uh, what part of my life is sport and what part of my life is kind of like uh, normal, I guess you would say, you know, and begin to separate myself from that identity of uh, I'm a baseball player. It's like, no, I'm Darren McMains, right, um, who plays baseball. You know, those are two, I think it's a very um, important distinction to make. And so I kind of went through that. Um, I didn't want to, right? But it was part of the rehab process. Uh, but anyway, so retired in 2008. Um, I had to stop switch hitting at that point. Just had too many surgeries on my shoulder where I couldn't hit left hand anymore. Um, and I just wasn't going to be a very good player. And again, it goes back to like how 
goal oriented I am. Like I realized at that point and had enough self-awareness where it's like, I'm not good enough to play in the major leagues as simply a right-handed hitter with a bad shoulder. Like I'm just not, you know, I had some value as a switch hitter, you know, as far as like a 25 man roster, I could, you know, um, you know, the team has a tough bullpen or whatever. I can hit both right and left-handed and I could, you know, play different positions in the infield. So I had some value there. So, but as soon as I knew I couldn't switch it anymore, I realized like playing in the big leagues wasn't going to happen. And so I was on to the next thing. Like I didn't want to be a career minor leaguer and, um, the giants asked me to coach then. So I coached in the minor leagues for five years and then got my master's in sports psych. So that's kind of my professional baseball career. What was your mindset like as a, as a baseball player when you were in it? And, um, not so much when you're injured, but more when, as a player, when, yeah. you're, when you're on the field. Yeah. Uh, so when things were going good, I mean, I definitely had some good times and played well enough that they kept me around, even though I kept getting injured because I'd showed enough promise in those times when I was healthy. Um, really mindset was one, like it's so cliche, but it was like, first and foremost, like I was going to go out there and have some fun with my teammates. Like, um, you know, again, I love to laugh, love to crack jokes. I love to have a good time. Um, so first and foremost, that's what I was going to do too, was I really, like, I love baseball. Like I just flat out love it. I love the chess match. I love the strategy behind it. I love the challenge of, um, it's just me and you, me and the pitcher. One of us is going to walk out of here happy. The other one's not like, I love that challenge. Your best versus my best. Where are you going? Like, I love that, um, that no one can kind of help you. It's just me and you, you know? So, um, I wanted to have a lot of fun. I loved it. Um, and then, yeah, the last one was, um, I want to get to the big leagues, you know? And so it was like, uh, I was going to do whatever it took to get there. You know, I take more swing, take more ground balls. Like, you know, I'd look around if that guy's taking 10, I'm going to take 12, you know, just for that slight edge, whether it was just maybe mentally or whatever. But I felt like if I worked more than him, then I would be better than him, you know? So that was kind of my mindset, um, really, you know, and then kind of after that fifth surgery, um, it wasn't fun anymore, you know, like, cause my shoulder hurt. And I'm like, I didn't even want to throw the ball around the horn. I'm like, Oh gosh, we got to throw the ball around the horn. This sucks. You know, uh, uh, it wasn't fun. And then the challenge, I kind of felt like I was defeated because my arm hurt and I'm already like, this guy's got a leg up on me, you know? And so I was like kind of beating myself up in the box before I even, you know, we even got to battle. Um, and then the goal, I kind of realized, I don't think it's going to happen, you know? So between, so like the three things that uh, kind of drove me to be the player that I was were the three things that got, got wiped out with all the injuries. So that's why when people ask if it was hard to walk away from something I'd done for so long, uh, not really, you know, I thought it would be a lot harder, but it, it really wasn't because I wasn't the same person. I wasn't the same player and I didn't get the same joy out of what I was doing. When you hear people say that guy's just injury prone, what's your reaction to that? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, I don't know, you know, um, it, it, may, it obviously makes my skin crawl a little bit cause that's what I would hear about myself. Like he's a good player, but he can't stay healthy. Like that's all I ever heard. You know, uh, is he made a glass? I don't know. You know, uh, those are things that I heard. Um, and the worst part is, is you kind of start to believe it. You know, I think you start becoming just, um, I mean, granted, I mean, all my injuries ended up having, you know, I had to have surgery. So obviously there was something wrong, but there were, I was definitely more uh, hyper aware of how my body felt, you know? And so there were times like, Ooh, that didn't feel right. You know? And then I kind of get like, what the heck was that? You know? Um, it, because you know, you start hearing all the noise around you and then you're like, gosh, if this is another injury, you know, and then you just start getting frustrated when there's maybe nothing, you know, maybe it's just whatever reason. So, um, I definitely believe though, I would say in understanding, um, as little as I do about the medical field, um, you know, but being spending a lot of hours in training rooms, I do remember them always saying, you know, talking about how like the greatest risk of future injury is past injury. You know, I, I would hear him say that a lot. And so like, if you've been injured before, you're probably going to get injured again, just whether it's, you know, um, 
you know, you've compensated differently because you've been playing hurt or, you know, now you have a new, a new shoulder, you have anchors in your labrum or whatever. So it's, you know, less, more likely to, to be injured again. So I do think, um, unfortunately there's probably something to it, but I don't think as much credit as we, um, as people tend to give it for sure. What did it feel like for you? You said it made your skin crawl. What do you feel like inside when I said that, when I said, put those two words together, injury prone, where do you feel that? Uh, in my gut. And it just kind of like, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like, cause it, it's personal, right? I mean, it's like one of those things you're like, ah, oh, man, like I heard that for years and it, it, it's not fair. You know, I think that's the biggest thing that you fight as an athlete is like, especially for injured athletes is like, it's not fair. You know, it's like you work so hard. Um, you know, you, you, you think you're doing the right things, at least to the best of your ability. And then, you know, someone uh, else, you know, gets the opportunity or someone else stays healthy all the time. And you just go, well, that's not fair, you know. So um, I, I think that's probably the thing that kind of uh, shows up, you know, but then. I've learned along the way that, uh, uh, that I was absolutely right. It's not fair, but I also learned that life is not fair. And so get over it, you know, so move on to the next thing and do the next right thing, you know, to do. So what drew you to sports psychology and, and what led you to transition into that? And you mentioned going to grad school after you retire, but, mm -hmm. uh, what was the draw as far as going into sports psychology? Yeah, I think the, the, the biggest draw for me was, um, when I started coaching, you know, uh, again, didn't have any experience with it as a, as an athlete. Uh, cause I saw it as something like for people that were messed up or, you know, whatever had the yips, but, uh, as a coach, um, all these kids show up, you know, best college, high school and college players in the country. And you look at them just from a skill set perspective on the field and they all look the same. They all look the exact same, like, wow, they all can run, throw and hit. And, uh, then you get to know them um, individually start building relationships with them. And you realize like, wow, these guys think differently. And that's why this guy is successful. And that why that, and you know, that's why that guy is not, you know, so you start going through those things and learning those things. And then for me as a coach, it's kind of like, well, I want to be the best coach I can be. So how do I start, um, coaching their mindset? Because it's not skill. Cause I, I can get out here at two o'clock with them and he's fantastic, but at seven o'clock, you know, he's scared to death or whatever it is, you know, or it's like, wow, this guy has no idea how to build a routine into his day, or he has no idea how to build a plan to get from point A to point B. Like, so how can I help him and how can I connect with, you know, we had in the minor leagues, you have a 30 man roster. So I got, you know, 30 guys or whatever, 15 position players. Like I'm, I got to connect with 15 different guys. So how can I get better at connecting? You know, unfortunately, um, there's really smart people in universities that teach you how to do that. So, um, it was about how do I get around those people and, and try to, um, learn more so I can just become a better coach and help, um, those players obviously reach their potential. What are the qualities that you see in guys that are successful at quote unquote seven o'clock? What are, what are the qualities you've noticed that, people have when the lights are on and they have to perform do you find any similarities between your time with two different ball clubs at the highest level yeah you know i, I think some things that that have shown up between some of the the very best you know and i'm talking like elite elite like you know best in the major leagues is um i think they all share the uh same feeling of they don't care of, of judgment of others you know, now where, where that comes from, I, uh, it's kind of different places. You know, some people are really secure in who they are. Um, some people have already been paid a lot of money, you know, or whatever it is, but the, they get this point where it's like judgment doesn't bother them, you know? So they're not worried about, um, making a mistake or even doing great. They really don't even worry about doing great. You know, it's like, 
I'm going to do me, you know, I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to prepare. I'm going to play the best again. Whatever happens, happens. I think they all share that where it's like freedom from uh, other people judging them. Uh, another thing that they all, um, have in common is they have an incredible routine that they stick to like incredible routine that prepares them the right way to play. You know, some people have a routine, but doesn't always prepare them. You know, it's like, Oh, I'm just going to do some, like, you know, I'll see some players where they're just doing maybe like front toss, like real soft toss, but then they go out there in the first thing they have a bad, you know, they consistently have bad first at bats cause they haven't seen velocity yet or whatever, you know, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just, you know, what I've seen is, is guys that have a really strict routine that truly prepares them to play like first pitch, you know, um, and they stick to it every day. doesn't matter if it's a seven o'clock game, five o'clock game, two o'clock game, noon, doesn't matter. Like they are doing this strict routine. Um, and then I would say probably the third thing. Um, so free from judgment, strict routine. And, um, the third thing is just, they know they, they literally have a goal. Like they know what they're trying to accomplish. Um, I know it probably sounds simple, but it's like a lot of guys just sometimes just show up and, and play maybe, you know, but um, you talk to these guys and they have something specific in mind that they're trying to accomplish, not only for the season, for the month, for the week, but for the game. Like there's something specific that they're trying to accomplish. When you um, first started doing this, I have no idea how many teams had somebody like you, but today it seems like almost every team you probably know the numbers better than me what do you think has changed and why do you think baseball has opened its doors to people in the sports psychology world you know what um you know i think it's been uh one i mean first like really great work by people that have gone before us you know like um you know unfortunately ken revisit has passed away but i think great work by him um has kind of paved the way for a lot of us and i think a lot of us um you know, owe a lot of gratitude for him and, and, and for others like Harvey Dorfman, um, people that have been in this field when it probably wasn't as widely as accepted. Um, but I also believe um, strength and conditioning paved the way for sports psychology because um, they open the minds to the, you know, baseball such a generational game, right? You know, there's a lot of quote unquote old school or whatever th- thinking patterns sometimes. But strength and conditioning paved the way because they thought like, oh, there are ways to train, right, outside of just taking more ground balls, you know. And then I think nutritionists came in and paved the way because then uh, coaches started seeing like, oh, wow, like nutrition impacts how you perform. And then there's analytics, right? Analytics has come in and has a pretty strong um, influence on the game, you know. And so – and I think people are getting to a place now where it's like um, – wow, these are humans and we can coach the mindset and we can make sure that they're, um, you know, prepared mentally for the game and, and understand enough about habits and, and the way we think and how identity and perspective in, informs our thoughts and emotions and how they influence our actions. And so we, I think, um, it's just kind of gradually happened, you know, that way, but I think all those things have kind of led to a place where baseball, um, uh, is now open to the fact that, uh, this is an area that we can really improve at, you know, and we can coach it that way. And plus it's a slow game, right? I mean, we have time. It's, you know, 15 seconds in between every pitch. Um, you know, that's the mental game, right? I mean, that's, that's the mental game sits in between those pitches. I also think uh, just from the outside looking in, you take an analytics and, and see what has happened from baseball analytics and how it's spread to all these other sports. And it is fascinating because baseball is considered the oldest of the four major sports, the most old school, the least progressive and willing to change yet analytics was birthed out of baseball. And one of my thoughts is, is because baseball really, if you can develop 
uh, it's a massive unfair advantage for a baseball team because they have guys' rights for so long. And they have a minor league system built in place, whereas the NFL doesn't have a minor league system. The NBA is trying to create one. Hockey has one, but it's not the same. They don't own, they don't, they don't have the same relationship. It's, it's similar, but not quite like baseball um, as far as bringing guys up in the regularity that happens in baseball over the course of a season. And baseball really, you, they keep guys down and then bring them up and, um, what I've always wondered is, is it the development, is it the focus on development that really has drawn sports psychology or that baseball has drawn sports psychology in? And my hope and, and sort of optimism is as basketball creates more of a minor league system uh, and puts it into place and you're seeing it really start to, to boom with every NBA team, except for maybe one or two owning a G league team that sports psychology will be more appreciated there. And certainly the time, the space, like you said, the slowing down that exists in baseball, which also exists, exists in sports like golf that are also popular with sports psychology. Um, but I really think it's about development and an emphasis on developing human beings in baseball and understanding if we can get this 19 year old kid up to the majors by the time he's 22. And then we have his rights to, I don't know the specifics of the CBA, but um, until he's 27, uh, then that's a really good investment. Um, so I think it's an ROI situation as well. Oh, that's a great point. I never thought about that, but I would hundred percent agree. Yeah. hundred percent agree where there is a whole development system in place um, that you don't have to perform right now. Right. And then there's all the challenges that go along with uh, development. So um, that's a great point for sure. Give everybody a sense of what your team looks like with, with the Mariners. And when I say team, I mean, from a sports psychology standpoint and, and what the mechanics of that look like. Meaning like, um, what, what do you mean exactly? Well, like, like what does my work entail or? Yeah, your work, but also I know you have a couple other people on staff that also. Oh yeah, sure. Work. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we have three people right now in our peak performance department. So we call it peak performance. Um, where two of those, um, two of them are working in the minor leagues. One is, uh, more at the double a level. He spends a lot of time there, um, in triple a. Uh, and we have another guy who's bilingual who spends more time at the lower levels where there's, um, many more Spanish speaking players. And so, um, I say this all the time. Those are two of the most, they're far more important than what I do because they are, um, that you can have a greater impact on someone's development as they come through the system. You know, kind of like I said earlier, when, when you catch them, when they get to the major leagues, you know, whatever they've been doing to get there, they're probably going to stick with for a while as they should. Right. And so I think it's just so important to uh, help them understand the, the importance and value uh, and understanding really of what is mental skills and how to incorporate it into their work um, as a minor leaguer, because then it becomes uh, a natural progression in the major leagues, you know, and then for us, uh, for me, I'm with the, our 40 man roster, which is uh, obviously major leagues and then uh, mostly triple a uh, had a couple guys in double a, but um, so it's, you know, for them, it's uh, I'm at every home game uh, and about probably one road uh, one road series a month. You know, so roughly uh, 110 games or so of the 162 game season, and it's uh, you know being available um, before and after the game. You know, obviously during the game they're working. So, uh, but you know, with with baseball there are conversations that happen. You know, um, maybe for a starting pitcher that's not pitching that day, uh, and he's already done his whole routine, and now the game is kind of two and a half hours. Uh, he's just sitting and watching. So, you know, you can have some good conversations then, but a lot of it is just, um, you know, helping them stay accountable to their routine, 
you know, maybe if they had a tough start or a tough week or whatever, it's, it's helping them get back to what was working for them before, you know, just cause we're always being shaped by our most recent experiences. And so you can have, um, you know, tons of success and tons of confidence or whatever, but the only thing you can remember is those last six games. Why? Because they just happened, you know? And so sometimes it's hard to, you know, is it hard to see the forest through the trees? And so, you know, it's like stepping back and say, Hey, you know, it's like, well, you know, what were you doing when you, when you were having success? And so, um, for some guys, it's just those one-offs, those conversations uh, for other guys, you know, we'll sit and have dinner with them every night, but you know, the 10 30 PM dinner after a game, uh, and just kind of talk about maybe leadership or how they can uh, lead better if they're an older veteran. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what it looks like. What sort of things do you intentionally do to make sure that you're sharp, make sure that mentally you're where you want to be? Uh, read, you know, I, I think that's the the biggest thing for me is, is, um, is reading and just trying to create a, a better understanding of, um, sports psychology in general, but, uh, just people, you know, um, because I think, uh, you know, we have 25 guys on our roster. I think there's like t- nine countries represented of our 25 guys. And so, um, you know, what's going to, you know, I grew up in Arkansas, right? And so uh, if there's guys from the South, I can easily connect with those guys, but how am I going to, you know, be relevant? How can I connect with um, guys from all over the world? And so um, for me, it, it's reading a lot. And then, um, you know, from that, you get a lot of stories and, and just, I think a greater understanding of just things in general. And then you could share that with guys at, the, at that level, you know, because um, I share this with our minor league guys too. Like when you're in the, if you're working with a college athlete, it's kind of funny when you're working with a college athlete, you can say, Hey, this is what a pro athlete does. Right. And they'll be more likely to do it. Well, when you're in the minor leagues, you can say, this is what a major leaguer does. And they'll be more likely to do it. When you're working with a major leaguer, you can't really say this is what a major leaguer does. One, because one, the guy knows him and he doesn't like him or, or he's already beat him or something, you know? Um, Oh, so, so my thing is always when you get to the major league level, it's like, you better know research, you better know stories, you better know how to connect different sports or experiences to them, you know? So it's like, you know, we talk a lot about Kobe, you know, like Mamba mentality is, you know, stuff that we talk about, or, you know, uh, one time we went through a, uh, a time we're talking about surviving in the woods and how does that equate, you know, from survival psychology, right. And then how does that equate to surviving, uh, as a, as a major league pitcher, you know? So it's like trying to find other stories that connect. Um, and, uh, so reading I think is, is huge for me. And I think that's about the only, um, thing that I do consistently that really helps me. You have a background in music. I do. Yeah, I do have a background in music. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit and, and how that is similar, different from uh, sports. Yeah. So I don't know what, you know, or I don't know what, um, but, uh, yeah, Google, so my mom, Google's, Google's amazing. You can actually find out <laughs> it's, it's creepy, but you can actually find out a thing yeah. or two when you want to find out a thing or two. Sure. So, um, yeah, so my mom, right. Worship leader at the church for a really long time. So I'd always had a passion for music, uh, was in, uh, high school choir, you know, which was awesome. Uh, loved it. Um, then I was going to do show choir side note. I was going to do show choir when I got to junior college, but then the, the, the teacher was like, Hey, you, you can't play baseball and do show choir. So you have to pick one. Well, I was like, well, sorry, someone play baseball. But anyway, so I have a passion for music. Then one, uh, what you're referring to is this, uh, country, uh, we call ourselves mock country. That was the music we did was mock country. Um, nothing against country. We both like country music, but we just thought it was funny how it's like, you, all you have to do is just like tell a story and play like three chords and it's like a song, you know? So one day we're in double a Jake Wald, a teammate of mine actually lives in the DC area. Um, uh, he, he, uh, he's a great guitar player and understands chord progressions and all those things. And, and I like to be creative and write. And so we just, we were in a, 
a slump. Our, our team was playing terrible. I think we had lost like you know, eight or nine in a row. And, and in baseball, that just feels like an eternity, right? And, uh, and and so everyone just kept saying, hang with them, hang with them. Hey, man, just hang with them. It'll be fine. Hang with them. And so we got so sick of hearing it. It's like it almost feels like a sad country song. So we wrote this. Uh, yeah, we, we ended up writing a, uh, a song called Hang With Them. And, and we did it in the style of Johnny Cash because that was the time Walk the Line came out, that movie, you know. And, and so we're like, oh, let's just pretend we're, you know, we're sitting around a fire, you know, writing just silly baseball songs. And then the funny thing was is our radio, um, local radio there in Norwich, Connecticut, heard it. Um, play, we were playing it in the clubhouse for some of the guys. I mean, we, re- we recorded it on GarageBand. It was ridiculous. And uh, they heard it. They liked it. And so they said, hey, can we play this song after we lose? We think this is a great song to play after we lose on the radio. And we're like, oh, sure, go for it. And uh, so it was actually awesome, the like second half of the season, because if we'd lose, we're like, well, at least our song's on the radio. you know. And if we'd win, it was great. So from that, fans would start coming up. Hey, do you guys have more songs? Do you have more songs? And we're like, no. And then we started thinking, maybe we should write more. So we ended up writing like, I think 22 or 23. We put out a couple CDs. And the funny thing is, is the Hall of Fame then gets finds out that they're out there and they have like a music section in the Hall of Fame. And so now, you know, we had to like submit it and then they had this committee listen to it and they're like, oh yeah, this is good. We're going to put it in the Hall of Fame. So uh, we have these, uh, you know, our groups, we call ourselves Stash and Hawks at the time. He had a mustache, a, a ridiculous handlebar mustache. I had a terrible mohawk. So we were Stash and Hawk and now our mock country baseball albums are in uh, the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. So uh, I love music because it's fun to create. It's fun to be vulnerable. It's fun to put yourself out there. It's freaking scary, right? When people are listening to your song because you're like looking around like, oh, shoot, you know, like, are they going to laugh or whatever, you know? But at the end of the day, it's like, um, it's just a good process to go through because one, um, uh, it, it forces you to be vulnerable and two, it forces you to like kind of remove judgment where you're like, you know what? I did it because I liked it. I did it because it's fun. And if you like it, great. If you don't, that's great too, you know? And so I definitely think there's a lot of similarities between being an elite level athlete and being a musician for sure. Well, I think that's a great place to stop. And I'm glad I asked that question. You, you, <laughs> you lit up and you're, you got excited to talk about it. It's a, it's quite a story. And uh, Darren, I just want to give you an opportunity to promote anything that you think deserves promoting or anything that deserves a megaphone, anything you're involved with. Uh, or anything you want people to know about. Um, so if there's anything, feel free to share. Gosh, um, I wish I had something, um, you know, to promote or whatever, but, uh, the really the only thing I would promote is our field. You know, um, there's a great advantage to be gained when you learn how to coach the mind and mental skills. And there's a lot of good people out there that are doing great job. And I think coaches need to learn to trust those people and understand that those people are there to help and not to take credit or not to um, discredit the coach and the job that they're doing. But there's a, there's a seat at the table for, um, for mental skills professionals to help athletes develop. And um, I hope that uh, every coach that's listening to this um, either finds one or already has one. Awesome. Great place to stop. Also give us your Twitter account. Cause I know you're active there. Uh, and Darren uh, really grateful for you because just as uh Dorfman and Revisa carried a torch. You're one of the people that's carrying the torch now uh, with those guys gone. So thanks for all your work and uh, you know, all boats rise with the tide. So uh, continue to, 
do great work and uh, the field will will continue to benefit. So thanks for all the work that you're doing and uh, really appreciate you also giving me the time to talk to you up in Baltimore uh, for about an hour or two uh, and share best practices and also come on the podcast and share your journey and, and what you've learned along the way. So give everyone your Twitter account as well. Yeah, sure. You can follow me at, uh, at McMain's DMAC. So, uh, capital M C capital M A I N S capital D M A C. Um, yeah, I don't know how beneficial it'll be, but I, I do love, uh, being on there and just sharing, um, you know, hopefully positive notes every now and then something funny, but, uh, mostly just positive, um, stuff that hopefully, uh, makes people better. Awesome. Darren, thank you so much for the time and looking forward to many more intentional conversations in the future. Yeah, this was fun, Brian. Thanks, man. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. Even in the way I I do my practice now when I work with athletes, it's like I I don't try to motivate them. I just try to help them discover a vision, right? Because vision motivates. Like I can't motivate you. I might be able to inspire you for a day and you might go do it. But at the end of the day, if you don't have a vision for yourself, then I know whatever that you're set up to do, you're not going to keep doing it. So motivation is just a byproduct, I think, of a clear vision. 